May I invite you to open your Bibles if you have them. Maybe you'll look along with someone near you. We're going to be going through Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38 this morning. Uh, we noted as we began our series in Luke three weeks ago that Luke was writing to a Greek Christian, and he was writing for the purpose of instilling, uh, of creating in Theophilus certainty. Uh, he wants Theophilus to be sure about the things he's heard that Jesus did and said. Luke wants to give us that same certainty as well. Last week, Michael was in verses 5 through 25, and you'll recall he talked us and walked us through God preparing for the coming Messiah and preparing Zacharias and Elizabeth. And he reminded us that God is always preparing us for something. And I remember sitting there as he said that and you know, I wanted to say, well, I, didn't, I don't view this as, prep, I, I view this as a bad thing. I want this out of my life. Don't do that, God. And I'm sitting in that and going, God. And, he, and he had, Mike asked the question, he said, what's God preparing you for? How's God preparing you today? Indeed, he's always preparing us. And he walked us through to show us that Zacharias and Elizabeth navigated God's preparatory work in their life by faith, by faith. And it's by faith that they moved from fear to joy, right? I want to encourage you, if you missed it, to please get the message and watch it. Not just because Michael's a great teacher, but because in this study through Luke, every message is connected. There are no standalones. They all connect, and we'll see that as we pick up verse 26 today. Before we read the text, let me give you some things to look for, okay? I'm going to give you the big overview of this section, 26 through 38. When we read the text, uh, go through it, and, and, or if you've already read it, you, maybe you had that sense of deja vu. You know, you read it and you go, I thought we just read this. this, is, this is this not the same story we read last week? And what do I mean by that? Well, when you read the story, you find there's an angel with a message about a pregnancy that's very difficult, about the naming of a child, about the future of that child. I mean, it's all, we're just going through the whole cycle all over again. When a writer puts two parallel accounts side by side like this, he's, he's making a point for us. It's like those uh, cartoons, you know, on the back of cereal boxes or something that you get, and there's this drawing, and, you know, your kids do them, and there's one drawing, and, there's, and it's like they look alike, and it says underneath this one, can you find the five things that are different in this picture? It's the same in this passage. We get these two accounts side by side. Can you find the three things that are different in this passage that we go through today, it's the difference he wants us to see. The theme of the passage is that Jesus is greater than John. Okay, what's the passage about? It's about Jesus being greater than John. Okay, John's mother was barren, but can I say this? They, they were old, they were barren, but they were doing what you got to do to get pregnant, and they couldn't get pregnant. Jesus' mom was a virgin. She was not having sex with Joseph. She was not doing that which makes someone pregnant. Jesus is greater. John's a forerunner. Jesus is the king. It says that John was great before God. It says Jesus was great, period. There's none greater. We find that John was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. That's, that's pretty amazing. Well, Jesus was conceived by the Spirit. So you get this lesser, greater, lesser, greater. And what I'm going to suggest to us today is when we put these two stories side by side, we see the lesser and the greater, but in the same way that 
John is lesser and Jesus is greater, I think there's this picture that Mary's faith is greater than that of Zacharias. That's the differences we see. Mary's faith is greater than that of Zechariah. And while many have made too much of Mary, and I'm going to address that in a moment, my question to us is, could it be that we've made too little? And I think we have. And I'm going to tell you something. We're going to land the plane today on these last two verses at the end, looking at Mary's response of faith. And can I say this? Luke presents Mary and her response of faith as the model of faith for you and I. We're going to make much of Mary this morning in the biblical sense. Here's what I'm going to do, okay? Just kind of keep your eye on your Bible, and I'm going to read the passage, but I'm going to stop with every once in a while, and I'm going to be the study notes. We're just going to go through it first and go, what's it saying? What does that mean? What's that about? I'm going to be the study notes, and then we'll make some observations. Start in verse 26. We're picking up on the birth narrative of Christ. Verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We'll stop there and Note this, it's happening in the sixth month. Now, he's not talking about the month of June, like in our calendar. He's talking about the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Verse 25, she was in hiding for five months. Now, it happened in the sixth month. What does that tell us? We're still in that story. These two stories are connected. We're not going on to something new here. These overlap. These are parallel. The scenery, you'll note in those two verses, has shifted. You know, here's the literary markers. He's going, we've gone from Judea, the heart of Israel, Jerusalem, the city of God, the temple, the place where we meet God, to a city in Galilee up north, and a town, a tiny village called Nazareth. What, what, what's Luke showing us here? He's going... We've gone from the pinnacle to the pit, literally. They, they, they did not think highly of Nazareth. Certainly didn't, didn't think highly of the Galileans. When Nathaniel was told that Jesus was from Nathaneth, what did he say in John? Remember that, what Nathaniel said? Uh, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know about you, but you know, if you're ever on the East Coast and West Coast and you say you're from Tennessee... What, what kind of response do you, I've gotten this response from people, you know, I'm from Tennessee. Y'all wear shoes down there? You know, you just go, what? They, they think we're idiots, you know. They just think nothing of, you think you're hillbillies. Well, when, when the readers saw this and saw that Gabriel, Gabriel, who delivers massive messages, is no longer in Jerusalem at the temple, but he's in Nazareth, they're going, what's up with that? What continues, the message, verse 28, and coming in, that's Gabriel, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. We'll stop there and let us note that Mary is blessed indeed. 
God is with her. She has found favor with God. The root word there is charis, it's grace. Rejoice, Mary, you've been graced by God. And please understand when we read this in its plain meaning and in, its, in the Greek text, the grammar, the focus is upon God's choice of Mary. Think of it how we studied in Noah and we, it said Noah was favored by God. And we asked the question, why Noah? Why not his cousin? Why not this guy? Because God in, his, in the counsel of his will graced Noah. And in the same way he graces Mary. The picture here is not Mary deserved the grace she got. It wouldn't be grace. It's unmerited, unwarranted, unearned favor. I mentioned many think too highly of Mary. I want you to know there's nothing in this text that has a whiff of Mary deserving this blessing. I, Howard Marshall, writes, quote, the stress, in the, God, the stress is on God's choice, not human acceptability. Many of you come from Catholic backgrounds, Michael included, and you know why I'm stressing this point just for a moment, not to slam, but just to go, let's, let's, state, let's see what the Bible says. You know, history lesson here, the Latin Vulgate, it's a late 4th century translation of the Bible into Latin. It was commissioned by a pope. And when they translated that, Jerome primarily, he translated verse 28, how? Those of you who are Catholic. Hail Mary, full of grace. And what we know, there's simply no arguing on this. Uh, Raymond Brown, a leading Catholic theologian, agrees with this. It's, you can't disagree with it. It's a mistranslation. It doesn't say, Hail Mary, full of grace, as if Mary's full of grace. It says, rejoice. That's the greetings. Rejoice, Mary, graced of God. It says, Mary, you found favor with God. God has graced you. And I, and I say this because I want you to know the Bible never hints at, much less teaches, and this is a mouthful here, but again, if you come from a, a Catholic background, this you know, you'll understand this. It never teaches that Mary was without sin. That's not there. It's simply not there. It never teaches that she remained a virgin. It's not there. I mean, when you read your Bible, um, she had other kids. She didn't remain a virgin. It never teaches that Mary was capable of dispensing grace. It says Mary was a recipient of grace, just like you and me. She was a sinner saved by grace. Verses 31 to 36. I'm going to keep moving again. Just move through the text quickly right now. It says, and behold, here's the message. And behold, this is to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And again, this is the third time he's mentioned virgins. Clearly, Luke wants us to know this, this young girl is not having sex, never had had sex, and isn't having sex to have this baby. I mean, he's, he's pounding this into us. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy, he's going to be holy, that's only God's holy, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. 
And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her six months. Stop right there. This message, here comes the message, you know, of angel, message, child, name a child, child's future. Same message that came to Zacharias now comes to Mary. We can say it this way. She's going to conceive and give birth to a son. His name will be Jesus. That's the uh, Greek translation of Joshua. The, the, the name means the Lord saves. Okay, right out of the, the shoots, you know, and Mary knows this. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. He's coming. The child will be the son of God and the king in David's line, and his kingdom will never end. When it says here, he will be the son of the Most High, that means son of El Elyon. Son of is, is, is equal to, he's going to have the same DNA, equal to, fully God. The conception of the child will be by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. I want to be careful here. Again, just there's no hint here of impropriety, no weirdness, nothing going on here crazy, nothing sexual at all. Overshadow, the Spirit will overshadow, the power of the Spirit will be upon you. What's that? Where's that used elsewhere? Of the glory of God in the temple, filling the temple, the presence of God, viscerally present in the cloud. It's used three times in the Gospels when, it's, when we're on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the cloud overshadowed them, covered them. We don't know the mechanics of this. All we know is the presence of God is so upon Mary that she'll conceive a child. And that child be fully God. Michael mentioned this last week. I want you to see it again. When you start in verse 31, would you just mark these? Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called. God will give him the throne. He will reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will have no end. What's this is the same as with Zacharias. It's all these wills and shalls. This shall be. And, and why, why the repetition of this? So important for us to grasp. Remember what Gabriel told Zacharias in 119 when Zacharias said, how will I know? And, and, and I kind of picture it this way. I kind of picture Gabriel a little you know, offended. It's, it, I just read between the lines. It's kind of like, he says, how will I know? And, and you remember Gabriel just pops off and says, what? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you. In other words, Gabriel's words are God's words. Gabriel's words, that's God speaking. What happened when God spoke in Genesis? All of us who studied, what happened? God spoke and what happened? Everything. You know, we're, we're talking about the same God who spoke and created the world from nothing. And so now God's speaking again. And, and what, what I want to, us to feel the force of is when God says it, it will be. That's why you will, you shall. It, it will be, for God spoke it. This could no more, you know, not happen than God when he spoke creation not happening. When God said, son, son ha the sun happened, the earth and all that is in it. All right, let's go down. When God says it will be, it will be. It's confirmed in the last two verses. Look at 37, 38. For nothing will be impossible with God Here's Mary's response. And Mary said, behold, the bond slave. That's doulos, the, the female slave of the Lord. She just named herself. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed 
from her. This section ends with what I would say is possibly the most assuring promise in the Bible and maybe the most misused, maybe the most misapplied, this particular verse. Stay with me on this. I'm I'm, kind of slicing the onion a little thin here, but I think it's important for us. We often take this verse to mean that God can heal the sickness because God is—it's you know God can do the impossible. He can get me the job. He can fix this wrong. He can right the injustice. Uh, he can he can restore the marriage. He can he can he can heal my body. He can provide the finances I need in this difficult time. That's what we take this verse to mean. And, and, and hear me, please. He can. God's able to do all of that. But that's not what this verse says. That's not, you don't go there with this verse when it says, for nothing will be impossible with God. It's like, it was, always bothers me when, you know, athletes, you know, win the championship and they say, I, you know, how'd you win the tournament? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, that's true, but that's not what that verse is talking about, your tennis match, you know? Or, or the guy, you know, again, you know, go War Eagles. But, but when Chiswick said at the end, you know, God was with us. I just want to, dang, so he wasn't, you know, when a team stands up, you know, the coach says God was with us. You're kind of like, well, yeah, but he wasn't with the other guys. Did you win just because he's with you? You know, just the misuse of the theology is all whacked out. That's what I'm talking about here. This is not saying, this is not the verse that says you know, he, he can heal you and he can provide those things. Look at the verse again, what it says, verse 37. It says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Note the word nothing. I've got it in my Bible in the margins. The literal translation of nothing is not any word. Okay, so what it's talking about is not any word will be impossible with God. What does that mean? Not any word that God speaks will be impossible for him to do. When God says something, it will most certainly be, and even though it seems humanly impossible, if God said it, it must be. What's the context of the passage? The context is not on you know, healing or any other thing. The context of the passage is salvation. This passage is, ta- passage is talking about what God does to provide salvation for you and me. And what God has to do to provide salvation for us seems humanly impossible. How can God become a man? And then how can a God-man, it seems humanly impossible, but we're talking about salvation. What's that verse saying? It's saying that, that nothing is impossible for God to do to provide that which we need for salvation. That's what the verse is saying. And let's put it in context here. And I know, I I get the prayer requests. I know your stories. I know my own. There's just a lot of pain in this room. There's a lot of hardship. There's a lot of difficulty. You know, welcome to life in a fallen world. And those things do matter. And I'm not saying don't pray that God wouldn't, you know, and believe God can restore the marriage or God can provide the work. God can, you know, believe those, want to believe those things. But what's the most important thing that God could do for you and I? The most important thing and the most seemingly impossible thing. Provide a way that we don't go to hell for our rebellion. Provide a way that satisfies his justice, but enables you and I to be forgiven of our sins, 
cleansed from unrighteousness, clothed with righteousness, that we might be with him forever. I think that's the most important thing in life. And the passage is saying, God's done it. It would be impossible for him not to do it, even though in your mind you go, there's no way he can do it. And your life and mine, whether it's, whether it's months that we live, years or decades, it's still in time. And God says the most important thing is what happens to you when you die for eternity. And I will secure your future. Nothing's impossible, for I've said it. Do you see that? If I summarize the whole passage, I would say it like this. At the right time, God initiated and orchestrated events that were humanly impossible in order to keep his word. What's the passage saying? That God, at the right time, he initiates. In other words, he brings this about. He initiates and he orchestrates events that are seemingly impossible. There's just no way that can happen in order to keep his word. God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that a man, child, would be born of a woman. He's keeping his word. God made a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that he would raise up an heir of David's whose kingdom would never end and he would be a father to him and he would be a son to, to, to God. And God is keeping his promise. In other words, at the right time, God initiates and orchestrates events that are humanly impossible in order to keep his word. Do you believe that? The text is asking us, do we believe that? Do we believe that? Here's the question. Do you know for sure that at the right time, God continues to initiate and orchestrate events that are humanly impossible in order to keep his word to you today. Do you know that for sure? That Michael said it last week. What, how's God preparing you? All the stuff in your life, do you believe that that's God preparing? That's God orchestrating? That's God working to, to, to fill his promise, his word to you? So you can know for sure that he does, but you'll only experience that. Here's the key. Make this connection. We'll only experience that conviction that that's true, okay, to the degree that we know what he said. It takes us all the way back to his word. If I want that conviction, I got to know what he said to me. Go back to this, nothing is impossible with, with God. God said, God said through Gabriel to Mary, you will conceive a boy, Again, being sensitive to all of our needs in the places we are. Be careful what you put your hope in. I don't know that God said to you, he's going to do, do this. He's going to fix that. If he didn't say that to you, be careful, be careful what you put your confidence in. Can I tell you what he has said to every one of us? I don't care where you are and the difficulty you're in, the hardship. Let me tell you what he has said, and you can bank on it. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, my Presence is with you and it's enough. He said that to you and to me. He said, 
He works all things together for good to those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. He said that. You can bank on it. You can know that for sure. Now, are things going to turn out the way you want them to? I don't know. But is God for you? Yes. Does he work all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose? Yes. Do you see that? Let's put our confidence and our hope in the right promise and in the right thing. Last two verses. I want us to consider a moment the difference between Zacharias' response and Mary's. The difference in their faith. I, I said this at the beginning. Mary shows us a faith that's worth emulating. I want you to think about this. If, if you didn't know this story and I said to you, okay, I've got something I want you to think about. I got a priest. He's an old guy. I mean, he's been a priest a long time. Uh, an angel's going to speak to him. I've got a young virgin, 12 to 14 years old. Uh, she's out in Nazareth. An angel's going to speak to her. Which one do you think is going to have the better response of faith? Where are you going to put your money? Now, you don't know this story. Where would you put your money? You put it on the priest. <laughs> and what does the story show us? Should have put it on the girl. Because Mary's response, according to the text, is greater than Zacharias. Why do I say that? Because the angel said to Zacharias, because of your unbelief, you won't speak. But when Mary asked the question, she, you know, Zacharias said, how can I know? Mary said, how can this be? You've got to think about this. That's two different questions. Zacharias said, how can I, I, I need to know. I, I want to know. And the angel looked at him and said, that's unbelief. You can't speak. But Mary said, how can this be? And according to the angel, that was not unbelief. Because he answered her. And he said, this is how the the spirit of God's going to be upon you. And then she makes this wonderful response in verse 38. And the angel's gone. He's got nothing else to say. Mary, little Mary What about her response of faith? Well, let's consider these things. Number one, we often miss the fact that Mary heard the word spoken. And we kind of gloss over this, but it says that she was perplexed and she kept pondering. In other words, she heard what God said. And she heard it enough that it troubled her. She heard it enough that she kept thinking about it. She heard it enough that it, it, you know, there's this angel standing there, a total stranger, and she's not running out screaming, who's this in the house? She's just sitting there going, what? I can't believe he said that because he said, I'm, how can that be that I'm favored? I'm just a girl. She heard the word. Why am I camping on that? Because I so often don't. Because we're so often quick to, I am, I'll say this. Oftentimes, I'll, I'll have my quiet time just to have it, and I'll read, you know, I'll read it. Okay, I read it. You know, I'm done. I haven't really heard. I I didn't go slow enough. I'm going to tell you, it's a theme through the book of Luke. Those who hear well, it's a theme, respond well. And there are those who, who hear but don't hear. It's a theme through Luke. And it begins with Mary. She heard it. She responded with faith. How about this? She says in verse 38, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. 
Here's what it means. She's a slave. She says, I'm a slave of God. So here's, here's what Mary has just said. Behold, I'm a bond slave of yours. A bond slave does what the master says. Mary has just expressed in a very beautiful way that faith and obedience are inseparable. Now, James isn't going to write this for some 80 years. Faith without works is dead. But Mary, little Mary, already knew that and declared herself, I'm a bond slave. Therefore, whatever you say I will do, she's connected faith and works off the bat. How about this one? Uh, All she knew was what she had been told and that, was enough. I mean, you know, she gets this message. You know, this is, this is not like, hey, by the way, you're gonna, you know, your hair's gonna turn blonde and da da. No, this is a baby in your womb. I mean, this is huge. That's all she knew, okay? And she didn't, she didn't project out, but what about, but what if, but what when, but what about Joseph? And he's gonna, can you, you know, think about everything that's gonna happen because she's pregnant. All she knew was what she had been told. I'm a bond slave. So when we hear well, and maybe we don't get everything we want to know, but we've heard well, what we've heard's enough to take a step of faith. Here's another one. Um, it says, you know, in, in the earlier verse, she was engaged, she was betrothed. Um, Betrothed means, you know, that she was locked and loaded on her future. In other words, it's a young girl who's, who's I mean, in, from her view, life couldn't be better. I'm, I'm going to be married to, to a good man. He's going to provide for me. We're going to have kids and live happily ever. In other, words, in other words, what I'm trying to say is she was betrothed. Therefore, for Mary, she had it all. Her future was set and secure. An angel shows up speaks a word from God, and that word from God blows up her security. It blows up her future. It takes her plans, and poof, they're gone. Do we see that? God's word blew her plans apart. And, you know, this is obvious. He does that a lot. He does that to you. And he does that to me. But Mary's response is key. I don't often respond like she does. Consider this again about Mary's faith. Being favored does not immunize one does not immunize you from pain. She's favored, she's graced. Let's not miss this. Her life's going to be one major can I say this? Pain. There's joy. Yes, I'm not, I'm not diminishing that, but do you know what's in store for Mary? We do. Misunderstanding, rejection, the death of a child. It wasn't uncommon, quite frankly, for ladies and parents in this time and culture to bury children. That wasn't uncommon. I mean, that, you know, children died. But there was no woman who would watch her son go through an unjust trial and be beaten and crucified and hung and ridiculed. No, no, no. no. Only Mary. Why? Because she was favored. (laughs) Because God graced her. 
And grace may indeed put you right in the teeth of pain and hardship. I've got this slide up on the side. Cynthia, I'm going to grab that other slide if you're up there. Someone up there? You up there? You know, I've got this slide for nothing will be impossible with God. Because when we read this passage, I think we look at that and we go, that's the most important verse in the passage. And I'm going to suggest that it's not. I'm going to suggest that the most important verse in the passage is the one that's up there now. Behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. That's the most important verse in the passage. Mary's response. Again, she says, may it be done to me according to your word. In other words, Mary's response is not, God, will you, will you do this for me? Will you provide that? Mary, you know, in other words, she's, she's going, no, whatever your word is, do it to me. <laughs> Let it be done to me. Now, I always look at these passages. I'm reading my Bible. I, I always kind of imagine. Again, I'm not saying this is true, but certainly it could be. Consider this. Mary's response, may it be done to me according to your word. The baby in her womb will grow up. And I just wonder if there weren't times that Jesus said to Mary, tell me about, tell me about what, the things that happened around my birth again. And, and Mary tells him, and, 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 and he says, Mom, what? I mean, when, that, when Gabriel said that to you, what did you say? What did you do? And she said, I said, behold, I'm a bond slave. What, what else? I said, may it be done to me according to your word. And don't you hear the echo over in Gethsemane when Jesus is facing a cross? A cross for you and me. Do you not hear a little echo of Mary? And Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. That's what his mom said when he was conceived. Mary's response of faith is outdone by her sons who chooses that faith. And can I say this? You and I will not we're, not, we're unable, we're unable to choose that kind of faith unless Jesus, can I say it this way, is conceived in us. can't do it until the son in Mary's womb who lived a perfect life was crucified buried and raised again lives in you it's called the new birth it's being born again I want you to stand I'm going to dismiss you with these thoughts Jesus in you and I, those of us who know him, will produce, can produce, he's the only one who can do it, will produce, may it be done to me according to your word kind of faith. Don't try this on your own. Trust Christ to produce that in us and through us. And if you've never been born again, Today's the day to believe. Put your trust and confidence in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ.